hundred years of Christianity, people would uh, celebrate the resurrection all at all different times of the spring, really. They, uh, they didn't have one set day until a, a council got together in the 200s, and they decided that they are going to standardize it because they wanted to have unity as they would get together and celebrate Easter together, all the churches knowing that there are going to be churches across the globe celebrating on this day. So this is what they've decided to do. First of all, they wanted it to be after Passover because they wanted it to, to follow the events that would happen uh, in the Bible the way that they really happened. The Passover happened first, then the cross, and then the empty tomb, and so then resurrection. So they knew that it had to be after Passover. And it, th- this was back when they were using the Julian calendar. They decided then that they would uh, celebrate Easter on the Sunday after the first Monday, after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox. Okay. Did you get that? So it's the Sunday after the first Monday, after the full moon, after the vernal equinox, and it's got to be after Passover. So all of that put together, uh, it means that, that uh, Easter moves around a whole lot. You know, it could, uh, it could be mid-March, it could be mid-April. Well, that, that was how the church then celebrated it until the 11th century, when there was a split between the Eastern Christian Church and the Western Christian Church. The Western Church, which was known as the Catholic Church, which just means universal, the Western uh, Church ke- kept the Julian calendar, and they kept their celebration. Um, no, I'm sorry, they, they moved to the Gregorian calendar, sorry. They moved to the Gregorian calendar, which was a little different than the Julian calendar, and so they began to uh, shift when they would have Easter, because the calendar had shifted, and they decided that they didn't always have to wait till after Passover. That's why it can land any time between mid-March to mid-April. But in the East, the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, they would celebrate it still according to the Julian calendar, and they would always wait after Passover. And so, though the Western Church would have celebrated Easter last week, this week, actually, is the Eastern Orthodox Easter. And uh, so, a, uh, somebody would be coming in with a big old white beard uh, and wearing one of these, and I'm not going to wear this throughout the whole sermon, but I just wanted to let you know that uh, Christianity has many different facets, and uh, it doesn't matter if you celebrate the resurrection last week or if you celebrate the resurrection this week. You should be celebrating the resurrection every day because Jesus is still alive, and that should make a difference in your life every single day. So we will celebrate the resurrection tomorrow and the next day and, and next week and yeah. Now, we, we may not have all the sermons uh, every week being uh, about the resurrection, but we should always mention that because that's where we have hope. Uh, Steve, did you want to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm pausing right now. And, and I've been told that I need to pause because some people miss my, my opening jokes. Some of you hear them and you still miss them, but that's okay. That's a, a different story. Am I good? Well, I'm, I'm at least on. Okay. Uh, the story goes that a, a senator, a very popular senator, had served in the Senate for a long, long time. When he died, he kind of caught heaven off guard as he uh, showed up to the pearly gates. And there was, of course, St. Peter, as all the jokes go. And uh, St. Peter says, we really uh, weren't expecting this. Uh, and so uh, we're going to do something unprecedented. We're going to allow you to spend 24 hours in hell and then 24 hours in heaven, and then you decide, sir, which one you would like to spend eternity in. And so they sent him in the elevator down, of course. That's how these jokes go. 
And as he gets out of the elevator, it's a beautiful day. Lush green grass. There's a golf course. Uh, the birds are singing. People are around the pool drinking mimosas. Uh, they're, they're dancing. They're having a great time telling jokes, enjoying their, their time. Satan comes out. He's, he's just the, the big man on campus. He's, he's boisterous. He's telling jokes. Everybody's the life of the party. They're, they're, they're having a great time. The, the man was actually very surprised that hell would be like this. And so uh, he finishes up his 24 hours, gets back in the elevator, goes back up to the pearly gates. And he says, I, I don't need to spend 24 hours in heaven. I, I've made my decision. I, I would like to spend the rest of eternity uh, downstairs, if I can, please. So Peter said, sure. Puts him back in the elevator. Guy gets back down, comes out of the elevator, and immediately everything has changed. It's all dry, barren, parched land, fire everywhere. People are writhing in misery and agony, and they're, they're, they're screaming out, being tortured by flames he said, I need to see the one in charge here. And so he, he seeks out Satan. And he says, Satan, what's going on here? Yesterday I came here and, and it was beautiful and there was a golf course and a swimming pool and, and, and my friends were here. We were all having a great time. What was going on? And, and the devil said, well, yesterday we were campaigning. Today you voted. Yesterday we were campaigning. Today you made your choice. Today you voted. We are in an election year, 2020, and uh, you know what that means? It means that we're going to be hearing a lot of promises from a lot of people who would like to get into office. And yet you, you start to look at those promises and you realize that though some of them might be actually from a sincere heart, many times whenever somebody says something to get elected, they're not really being sincere. Uh, somebody once said, you could tell a politician is lying if he is you know, moving his lips. Um, because there's a lot of empty promises that politicians will make us. But from the opening story, that little joke, we find out that politicians aren't the only ones that make empty promises. Uh, Satan makes empty promises as well. In fact, in fact, he's really good at deceiving people as he promises them a good life and, and a great future and, and control over everything. And we find out that those promises are really empty. Resurrection Sunday, for me, will forever stand as an example of some of the few empty promises that Satan tried to make, where he was trying to convince us that he would win in the end. Crucify the Son of God. Get rid of the King. Um, the, the world would be a better place. Now, I, I've heard that more recently. Uh, there's a song, something like, Imagine There's No Heaven. It's easy if you try. Huh. Uh, well, how's that working out for you, John? Is the world a better place because we've gotten rid of a, a faith in God? Because we've actually followed what Satan has led us down to, to, uh, to, to, to live this way, to have this kind of belief? Is that really what's going on? Are we in a better place now because we have forgotten that there is a heaven, that there is a hope, that there is eternal consequences to our actions and where we place our faith? See, Satan made promises that weekend that were very empty. But God made promises that weekend as well. And, and ironically, they, you could say that his promises were empty as well, but in, in a vastly different sense. Whereas our enemy's promises, when they are bought into, just lead to a, a sense of emptiness in ourselves. God's promises are intended to fill us full with his love and grace and power through the Holy Spirit. And here's the great part. Those promises hinge on the emptiness of the tools. 
that Satan used in an attempt to derail our faith. So the promises of God are based on an empty cross, an empty tomb, and empty grave clothes. Those are the empty promises that I want to celebrate with you today on this second Resurrection Sunday that we get to celebrate. So would you pray with me real quick? Father God, as we open up your word, and we are going to be reading this familiar story once again, God, I would pray that uh, you would keep us from just becoming bored with it. Lord, I would pray that you'd show us the joy and the excitement of the empty promises that you've made to us. Way better than any empty promises that a politician or Satan would ever offer to us. God, your empty promises are full of power. So God, open up our hearts and our minds as we open up your word. I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, let's look at those three things. First of all, there is an empty cross. It had been an unprecedented weekend, one that would make the, the disciples' heads spin. Thursday night, their master had been taken away by the temple guard. There had been a, an illegal trial in the middle of the night. Lies were told, threats were made. Finally, uh, early Friday morning, the verdict was passed. Jesus would be executed on a Roman cross just outside of the city. It had then progressed into a scene of horror. A man scourged raw, spit upon, jeered, crown of thorns mocking his claim of kingship, then made to carry his own cross until he stumbled under the weight of that cross piece. A man whose hands and feet were pierced through by Roman spikes, hung to die on a tree, a death of suffocation, looked upon with ridicule. I want you to take your Bibles or look on the screen there, Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. This is what we, we read. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the, fount the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothing by casting lots. The people stood watching, and, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, oh, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. There was no doubt about Jesus' death. A soldier had even run a spear through his side just to make sure. They watched as Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body down from the cross and placed it in his own unused family tomb. The cross was now empty. Empty. This instrument of torture, no longer torturing. Just standing there empty. Now, it, it could have stood throughout the ages as a cruel mockery of justice. A, a man who had done nothing wrong, dying at the hands of those who claimed to have come to save. The, those he claimed to have come to save. For many, the cross is just a sad reminder of a martyr who had only tried to tell people that they should love one another, and for that he got himself killed. But here's the deal, folks. The cross stands empty for a reason. It's significant that the cross is empty. We do not gaze upon a pitiful pulp of a man whose campaign to bring brotherly love into this world had miserably failed. It's important not to see that. That's not the point of the cross. The empty cross is a powerful promise that, from God that we are no longer helpless in our sin. When we look on the cross, when we catch glimpses of what we imagine the crucified Christ may have looked like, bloody, torn, suffering, that should remind us of what sin does to our own spirit. Because of our sin, our spiritual condition is bloody and torn and suffering. Here's the deal, there's nothing that we could do about it. Nothing at all. There's nothing worse than a dream. I'm sure that you've had this happen to you. There's nothing worse than having a dream where you're in a situation that you know is bad and you're trying to get away from something. You're trying to do something about that that's happening that's bad. A person's chasing you or times you're trying to move and you just can't or trying to scream out and you can't. Those are the worst, right? To be caught in something that you cannot get out of. Boy, sin became that kind of a nightmare for mankind. We tried to find our way out of the dark. We've chosen several paths of self-righteousness. But that pesky, sinful nature 
keeps popping back up. Moves in, tries, try, tries to get us to, to wallow in that guilt and sin. Our pesky, sinful nature rearing its ugly head because we're in a trap in which there's no possible way out on our own strength, on our own virtue, on our own goodness. But the empty cross stands as a reminder that we are not helpless. What we were powerless to do, God himself did by becoming our bloody, torn, torturous sin. And he put it to death on the cross. And when the body was taken off of the cross, so was the sin. The cross is empty because the work had been fulfilled. He died with the full weight of our sin on his shoulders. And so as he died, our sin died. And after he had died, they took him off the cross because it was finished. Our sin was paid for in full, suffering over, blood drained out, life gone. And now the cross, empty. I I often am stumped. I I, I ponder why so many churches, Jesus is still on the cross in their church. That always has puzzled me. It's as if in their mind, Jesus is still suffering. That, That somehow when they sin, it makes him suffer again and again and again. That poor, pitiful man suffering for doing nothing wrong. But folks, that's not the purpose of the cross. It was not to make a martyr out of a man who was trying to get us just to love one another. That's not the point of the cross. The purpose of the cross was to take care of the problem of sin once and for all. And Jesus is no longer on the cross, amen? He is no longer on the cross, and therefore our sins no longer have to be paid for. It was already done once and for all. I love from the book of Hebrews what the, uh, the, the, the author says. It's, it's an amazing idea of, of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. He says in, in chapter 11, I mean in, in chapter 9, verse 11, he says, uh, 9-11, uh, I, just, I just thought of that. In 9-11, Hebrews 9-11, When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that was not made with human hands. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most high place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all, at the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Folks, the cross is empty. The cross is empty. Jesus didn't have to stay up there to suffer many times over. It happened once, once for all. And in dying, Scripture tells us that he did away with sin and offered us God's forgiveness. The cross is empty. The body's not there. Our sin is no longer there. It's an empty cross. Our past taken care of. Forgiveness offered to us full and free. Our sin no longer determining our destiny. There's a second thing that was empty that day, and that was the empty tomb. The tomb was empty. Let's continue on now, chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, 
the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. The women had waited until just the moment right after the Sabbath rest. They wasted not one minute more. They went when it was still very early in the morning. Sun hadn't even come up or it was barely coming up. They had a job to do, to honor the dead, to care for the body, to memorialize the man who had held all their hopes. That hope was gone, of course. While Jesus was alive, there was a promise of a new way of living, a a new kind of government, a, a renewed understanding of the character of God, a living, breathing Jesus always meant that there was hope that God would make everything right. A time when the oppressed would find freedom, the outcast would find acceptance, the downcast would find everlasting joy. But now those hopes were gone, the dreams shattered, dead, buried in a tomb with their Lord. So what an incredible shock that morning it would have been for the women to come to the tomb and find it was empty, empty. We know this would have been a surprise because in Mark's gospel, the women had been discussing on the way to the tomb who was going to be able to move the stone. It was so heavy, the stone that was incredibly large, the stone that bore the signet of Caesar, forbidding anybody to attempt to open that tomb up. But the stone that was now rolled away. And instead of the soldiers there on guard, the only sign of life were two men dressed in glowing white, who had suddenly appeared out of nowhere. Why do you look for the living among the dead? The men asked. But the women weren't looking for the living. They, Not in their minds, at least. They were looking for their dead Lord. They, they were looking for one who was dead, because that's what you would expect to find at a tomb. Duh! They're in a cemetery. You're, you're looking for the dead. See, I... I think hopelessness is one of the greatest tools of our enemies. Too many people in our world face figurative tombs all the time. A death of their dreams, the loss of a loved one, the disappointment that their life is not what it could have been. But folks, the tomb, the tomb was empty, which means death did not win. In the Old Testament prophet Hosea, God gives us this promise. He says, excuse me, he says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? When the tomb was discovered to be empty, the promise of eternal life was now made reality. You see, resurrection really was possible, and not just only possible, it was now an undeniable reality. You see, once our past was taken care of through the forgiveness by an empty cross, now 
our future has been taken care of as well. Because the, the, the tomb is empty as well. Death no longer has a hold of the believer. Though it is true that the wages of sin is death, there is a gift that must not be overlooked. We find in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? You better be saying amen there at home. Imprint that verse on your heart. Let that promise sink in and change the way you see the purpose of your life. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, at the empty tomb, life conquered death. And we no longer walk as those condemned. In fact, Paul tells us that, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And so in the empty tomb, we see our future taken care of. Through the physical death will be a reality for all of us should Jesus wait to come back. Spiritual death is no longer a threat because he lives, we too shall live. Then there are the empty grave clothes. That's the third empty promise of God. Luke continues his narrative in verse 9 of chapter 24. He says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and then he went away wondering to himself what had happened. What's so important about the grave clothes being empty, those, those linen strips just lying by themselves? Well, first we must understand the method of preparing a body uh, there in the ancient Middle East. Uh, the, the dead person would have been wrapped in linen, which would have been a long, wide piece of linen that would be wound around, very much like an ace bandage, would, would be wrapped around a wound today. Uh, a linen strip would then continue around the entire body uh, until the entire body was covered up to the neck. And then they would use a separate piece of cloth for the head. This actually tells you that the Shroud of Turin, while it's a pretty fascinating mystery, it's, it's not the way that Jesus would have been buried. Um, not a big old sheet just wrapped around him. It, it would have been this strip of linen cloth and then the, the head being um, uh, kind of wrapped in a, in a different, separate way. So as the body was, though, being wrapped, spices and ointments would be interspersed with the strips of linen as they were being wound around the body. At Nic- Nicodemus, the, the Bible tells us, Nicodemus and Joseph had brought a hundred pounds of this stuff. hundred pounds of spice with which to prepare the body. And, and now we find out that the women were actually bringing more spices, which tells me that they either did not know what Joseph and Nicodemus had done, or they just wanted to, to help. And, and make sure that everything was, was right. As, you know, my wife would like to come alongside of me after I've done something and make sure I've done it right. And, and, and sometimes she cleans it up after I've cleaned it because I hadn't done it right. So may, maybe that's why they were coming because uh, they knew that Joseph and, and Nicodemus being men just would not have prepared the body correctly and they were going to do it right. I, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, they, they were coming to bring more spices And so as the spices and the ointment and the strips would be wrapped around, all of a sudden you have this hard cocoon-like shell form-fitted around a body. That's how they would 
bury people. That's how they would prepare the body for burial back in the ancient Middle East. So the only way for anybody to take a body out of grave clothes would be to physically cut them out of the linen cocoon and peel it away from the body, leaving quite a mess. Quite a mess. So why did the grave clothes look different than that? Why why were they lying there, uncut, undisturbed, just as they had been? We we find out from other um, uh, gospel accounts. They they were there, undisturbed, minus one thing. (laughs) There's no body. There's no body in the the grave clothes at all. Why, Why were these grave clothes empty? There's an event that uh, takes place shortly after the resurrection. It's when Jesus shows up in the midst of the disciples to show them that he was alive. They, they were hunkering down in the upper room. And, and, and reading from the Gospel of John, John 20 says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. The doors were locked. He didn't come through the window, didn't come down the chimney, didn't come through the door. He just appeared. Doors locked, and yet Jesus materializes in their midst. Did he walk through the wall? I don't know. Did, did he just appear? It was like Star Trek and beam me down. However it happened, and we don't know, this is a different manner of appearing than Jesus had ever done before his death and resurrection. Do you see how somehow the temporal body of Jesus, the fleshly body of Jesus, the the body that he had put on to tabernacle amongst his people, to to live among us, had been transformed in some way. It had been transformed. Yes, it still looked like Jesus. They knew it was Jesus because it still was Jesus. It was not some kind of imitation or, or some apparition of Jesus or some kind of hallucination. It was Jesus, but he was different. He was different somehow, no longer confined to the physical limitations that he had once accepted as a baby, coming down to be born as a man. That's how he was able to leave the grave clothes, folks, and to leave the grave clothes lying empty as they were. He was able to somehow materialize out of them miraculously. How? Well, it's very simple. The resurrection had transformed his earthly body, most likely uh, to reflect on the heavenly existence that he had known from eternity. The empty cross was a sign of the promises of forgiveness, the fact that we're no longer helpless to die in our sin. An empty tomb is a sign of a promise of resurrection, the fact that we are no longer lifeless. Eternal life now waits for us at the end of this life. And finally, the empty grave clothes are to remind us that our present situation is filled with hope, that God has promised us miraculous transformation as well. Because we are in Christ. Because Christ was transformed. We are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit when we come to faith in Jesus. And so our past has been taken care of. Our future has been taken care of. And even our present can be taken care of right now through transformation. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. And by the way, I I think that this would be a wonderful uh, scripture to put above the door of our nursery at church. It says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. We will not all sleep, 
And, of course, Paul's talking about our death. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Now, what is that going to look like? I don't know. Great question. Great things to ponder, to speculate. Will we have wings? Will we glow? Will we be recognizable? There's very little about our heavenly bodies that we are told about in Scripture, except that we will be like Jesus. We will be like Jesus. There will be some kind of transformation there in heaven, and that's a good thing. I don't know about you, but I get tired of dealing with all of the limitations of an earthly body. I wrote this actually before I fell on my cement garage floor. And now I am part of the cane club. I'm that guy that carries my cane around and my butt pillow around. And I will probably be doing that for some time. I do get an MRI tomorrow to see if there's anything else that I, that I messed up in there. I'm tired of living with physical limitations. I don't know about you. I, I'm looking forward to that day that I get a new body. I get a transformed body in heaven. It's great to anticipate that day that I will be transformed into a heavenly body. But what about the other limitations that are not physical in my, in my life? All of those things that I struggle with that are not physical limitations. You see, I'm also tired of dealing with a sinful nature. I'm tired of having to deal with the struggle in relationships because of sin. I'm tired of having to deal with temptations and, and the times that I blow it and turn away and, and have that conviction. I, I hate that. I hate that. I would love to live in victory over my sinful habits. I would love to be free from the burden of, of being offended, to leave behind my bitterness and my hatred. Like Paul, I, I, I look at my life and I'm frustrated at how I do the things that I know are wrong and I neglect the things that I know I should be doing and I say, just like Paul, who will rescue me from this body of sin? The answer, according to Paul there in Romans, is thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ. Jesus showed us that he had been transformed because of the empty grave clothes, which means that we can be transformed not just when we get to heaven, but we can be transformed right now. No, we can't walk through walls, but there's even more miraculous things that can happen. We can give up our addictions. We can have our relationships made right we can begin to walk in humility. We can start to actually love one another. Not through our own power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit that comes into our life because Jesus has risen from the dead. See, Jesus isn't waiting until we get to heaven to change us. How did a group of frightened men and women cowering in an upper room, fearing for their lives because of their association with Jesus, how could they have been changed into a force that would literally turn the world upside down? They were transformed. They were transformed by Jesus' resurrection. Yeah, we never read about them miraculously materializing in the midst of a locked room, but we see them courageously standing for the truth of the resurrection, sharing the good news of forgiveness and resurrection with a lost and dying world in the face of severe opposition. So Satan's promises hinged on a, the feeling of being helpless, being lifeless, being hopeless, hopelessly stuck. Empty promises, folks. Empty promises of a cross, a tomb, and some burial clothes. 
Oh, Satan sure thought he'd won. Don't you love divine irony? Oh, I love divine irony. In arrogance, in arrogance, the great serpent struck at the heel of the Son of Man. And in turn, just as God had prophesied there in the Garden of Eden, the Son of Man crushed the head of the serpent. He could not be contained. He was risen last week. He is risen today. There was no cross. There was no tomb. There was no burial clothes powerful enough to hold him back. For God's promises are based on the fact that the cross, the tomb, and the grave clothes are all empty. Our enemy wants to trap you into emptiness. But the promise of Resurrection Sunday for you is that God is able to fill you up like you have never, ever before experienced. On that very first Resurrection Weekend, God offered us forgiveness from our past, eternal life for our future, and a present reality that is filled with hope as we see the Holy Spirit taking us and reshaping us into the men and the women that God had always created us to be. Worship team, I'd invite you to come on up. This morning, as you're listening to this, I have a question for you. Have you found life to be more and more based on the empty promises of our enemy, the devil? Are you feeling today like you cannot escape from an unforgivable past? Are you struggling because you're unsure of your future after this life is over? Are you frustrated that you cannot find victory over the mistakes and the habits and the sins that wreak havoc in your relationships and in your life. There is a way to be filled. There's a way to be filled today to celebrate not only the resurrection of Jesus, but to celebrate your own resurrection as well. You see, when you're empty, it's, it's like being trapped, trapped in a prison, heavy chains wearing you down. The good news today is that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus has broken your chain. He calls you to surrender to his will and to his plan. See, you cannot get out of those chains of sin and death and the flesh by yourself. You need to claim Jesus as your Savior and make him your Lord, your God. The one who promises that all that is empty in you will be fulfilled and filled by him in a way that you never thought imaginable. It begins with a simple conversation that you have with God. And I want to lead you in a prayer today. This might be a day of salvation, of resurrection for many of you who have never said this prayer. And it's not the words that are magical that, that do anything. It's, it's the heart behind the words. It's the attitude that you have when you're talking to your God. And, and there's other steps then to take. It's not just, well, I said the prayer, so therefore I'm, I'm good. There, there's, there's so many other things that you can do to help grow your spirit and to become closer disciple of, of Jesus. I would say that if you're going to say this prayer with me today, that you seek somebody out that understands who God is and and who Jesus is and how this all fits together, that you would actually reach out and ask them to to help explain this to you even more. But folks, Jesus isn't on the cross. He's not in the grave. He's not in his grave clothes. All of those are empty so that God can then fulfill you, fill you up as well with his power, strength, his ability to overcome not just the sin in our life, but death as well, where one day we can step from this life into eternity. So would you just bow with me right now? And uh, if this is your desire, you can pray a prayer like this. 
God, I admit that I have gone astray, that I've done things in my own power, in my own wisdom, and Lord, it's gotten me nowhere. I have lived like there was no heaven, like it didn't matter, that there was no eternal consequences, that there was no God, and I've ended up empty, following those empty promises of Satan. God, I want to now claim those empty promises that are really truly full promises that you give to me as there is an empty cross representing my forgiveness, the forgiveness of everything that I've done and everything that I will do, paid for by Jesus' death on the cross. And God, that empty tomb it shows me that I don't have to die, that I can have eternal life with you because Jesus conquered death through his resurrection. And Lord, those empty grave clothes showing me that there can be transformation, that you can actually come and change who I am so that I don't leave a wake of chaos behind me in my sinful choices. But through your spirit, I can actually change. And so, God, I want that. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. I put my trust in your son's death and resurrection so that I too may live. And I accept your Holy Spirit into my life that he will begin to change me into the image of Jesus. And so, doing so, I will live for you. No longer to live for myself, but to live for you. God, for those who have prayed that prayer, I would pray that you would just fill them with your love and your peace right now, that they would know that they are now your children, that they are now in your family, that they now have the promise of eternal life, but not just eternal life after they're dead, but eternal life right now, abundant life, and that you will walk with them every step of the way, and that one day they will step from this life into a a glorious eternity with you. Thank you so much for the resurrection that we celebrate every day, every week. Thank you so much for this time that we get together and we worship you, that we magnify you because we have no life without you. God, we love you so much and we thank you for this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.